The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Well, good morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 41, if you will. And let me kind of introduce this morning by saying this. We all seem to love a rags-to-riches story, don't we? You know, the Cinderella stories, um, the stories that many of us may watch on some of, uh, well, not many of us, my wife likes to watch, you know, the rags-to-riches, the girl who lived a hard life, and finally she finds her prince charming. The story doesn't go on long enough because oftentimes it turns out to be a toad frog. But I think about rags to riches, and we love the stories. We have a lot of them currently in our cultures. I thought about this idea. Many of us are so familiar with Steve Jobs, later CEO of Apple, literally changed the world in uh, his invention through the Apple computer. At a young life, he was given away uh, at adoption or for adoption by his parents who did not want him. Later, he goes on and from a number of foster homes, goes to college. Money was short, so he was forced to sell Coca-Cola bottles. If you're uh, pre-1961, you may not understand that, but he sold Coke bottles just to try to pay his tuition and couldn't afford that, drops drops out of college and later becomes one of the wealthiest men in our day. I think of Tyler Perry, who grew up in an abusive home, beaten by his father and in a way to relieve himself of the pain and the sorrow that came through all of that. He found himself writing in a journal and later these journals kind of turned into scripts and now today Tyler Perry is probably one of the most prominent producers in the movie industry and has done a lot and the list could go on. Um, Snoop Dogg, as a matter of fact, uh, not a very edifying lifestyle, however, was a once drug dealer and on Skid Row later becomes one of the most wealthy. But we love these rags to riches story. But and when you look at most of these rags to riches story in our culture, it seems as though they're really a story of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. We see in these stories that oftentimes many individuals, it's because of their tenacity and their hard work and those kinds of things, and in some instances, just being at the right place at the right time, they rise from rags to riches. But when I look at the story of Joseph in Scripture, I find that it is not a rags to riches story. It wasn't a story and it isn't a story where Joseph kind of musters up all of his physical abilities or his mental abilities or he muster up all of himself to rise above the circumstances. But what I see in this is where God takes a man in his purposes and brings him from prison to the palace all in the power of God. You see, there's a great difference when we look at what the world esteems as one making it, and we see these stories of how God fulfills his purposes in what seem to be insurmountable odds to bring about his purpose and to completely turn around things. I think God's method is pretty amazing. 
when I look at the story of not only Joseph, but I think of King David, how King David was the, the least of his brothers and how God brought him from the pasture into the palace where he would as soon become king, all because of God's work. Paul identifies himself as one of those and calls himself the chief among sinners, yet God turned his life around through miraculous events to fulfill not only God's purposes in Paul's life, but ultimately to fulfill God's purpose in all of his plan and his will. The Lord Jesus Christ himself how he became a lowly servant. And who would have imagined that God Almighty, the creator of the universe, would have chosen to reveal his nature and character of a man being born, God being born of a virgin. And I'm sure there were those in Jesus's village that may have said, yeah, right, you were born of a virgin. But how God takes this lowly man, fully God, and he uses the message of the cross, which was foolishness to the world, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And we see God working miraculously in events and lives in his plans. And when we see God working, when we know that it's God working, we cannot help stand back and be amazed and say, God did this. We see this in Joseph's life. I, I love what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, and I'll back up in verse 25. You can just listen to what I want to read here. As Paul says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Can I put in parentheses, though I've met a lot that really thought they were wise? You know, the guy you'd like to buy him for what he's worth and sell him for what he thinks he's worth, right? But he goes on to say, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing those that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, I love the stories of God taking that which seems to be lowly and foolish and powerlessness in the world, and he completely flips it around, and he uses that individual who knows that it's God that works through them to do those things that would confound those who might seem to be wise. Well, when I think of Joseph's story, I think it's just that very situation just to recap a little bit, we know that Joseph was despised by his brothers. He was the favored of his father, Jacob, and his brothers in jealousy sought to kill, J uh, sought to kill Joseph, yet they didn't kill him. They spared his life. They throw him in a pit, and some, some, uh, some, some individuals come by, and, and they buy Joseph, and he goes into slavery 
Then he finds himself in Potiphar's house, a place that God had given him favor to be. Yet in that very instant, Joseph had malicious uh, lies told about him by Potiphar's wife, and then he finds himself in prison, and we're not sure, but sometime for about five years, he's there in prison, and while he happens to be in prison, there's the cupbearer, and there's the baker who were under uh, under the, the, the lordship of Pharaoh, the king, and, and they have these dreams, and Joseph interprets these dreams, and, and he says, listen, as I've interpreted your dreams, remember me when you go back to Pharaoh and maybe he will find favor, but he was forgotten. And there in another desperate situation, he continues to remain there in prison. Well, it happens that after that time, just to recap a little bit of the first part of chapter 41, as we come into this instance where Joseph had been forgotten by the the cupbearer and actually good reason why he was forgotten uh, forgotten by the baker because his head was decapitated, but he was forgotten. And then later we find that Pharaoh himself has a dream. And we pick up in verse 14, just to recap the story. We read it last week, the story that Pharaoh had, the dream that he had was that Pharaoh was disturbed at night as he woke up because in his dream, he had seen seven fattened cows come out of the Nile. Well, it was very common there in the Delta area of the Nile, kind of the floodlands, that, that the cows would go there and they would, they would dip themselves in the water oftentimes to escape the heat and they would come out and the meat from the cows was a great resource for Egypt in order to feed all of the masses of the people in the kingdom at that time. But there, outside of the waters, there were seven lean cows that were there. And as as the fattened cows, the healthy cows come out of the Nile, Pharaoh dreams that he sees these very lean and weak cows gobble up and eat up the fat cows. And he was disturbed by this dream. He goes back to sleep and he has a second dream. And in the second dream, he sees that there there are corn stalks and and on each stalk of the corn were seven good ears of corn. And they were healthy and they were vibrant and they were producing. But along with those seven, there were seven other stalks that, or there were more stalks of corn that had seven ears and the ears of the corn had been withered away and they were blighted by the strong, hot east wind that sometimes in the region could take the temperature up another 40 or so degrees just in an instance. And these very weak corn cobs ate up those that were strong. And Pharaoh was disturbed by his dreams, so he calls all of those around him that were his wise men, his magicians, to beseech their gods, and they worship multiple gods, to find out what the interpretation of this dream was. And you remember, all of a sudden, it was the, it was the baker that realized, hey, there was a man while we were in prison that, that interpreted our dreams. And so, in verse 14, we find that, that Pharaoh calls for Joseph, and Joseph tells him, when he asks him, will you interpret my dreams? Joseph says to him, it is not in me, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then picking up in verse 25, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. 
for God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Now, God had given Pharaoh these dreams, but ultimately behind the dreams and all that was going to take place was God fulfilling his promise and God fulfilling prophetically that vision that he had given to Abraham that from Abraham would be all of these descendants that would outnumber the stars and the sky and the sand on the sea, but there would be a period that the Jewish people would be brought into captivity in Egypt, and this is the forerunner of that. And so Joseph is a part of God's plan, a part of God's purposes in fulfilling his will. So reading on, verse 26, the seven good cows, he says, are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years, and the dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that come up from the Nile are for seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. You see, there will come seven years of great plenty throughout the land of Egypt, but after them there will, be, or there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing of God is fixed. And so here we see he explains that there are going to be seven years of good crops. There are going to be seven years of abundant grain that will be in the land. Egypt at that time was considered to be the breadbasket of the world where all of the known world at that time received grain from Egypt, and God had used that so that all might be fed. But here now, there's going to be great years, seven great years, seven years of famine, and then he says, God has given you two dreams, Pharaoh, because this means that the thing is fixed. Now, I want us to pause there for a minute. You see, there are things that God has ordained according to his purposes that are fixed. Amen? I'm not really concerned about a meteor striking the earth and doing away with the earth because we know that there are things that God has said are going to take place in the future that they are fixed and nothing else will change or ratify that. When God says yes and amen, it is yes and amen. And no matter what happens, no matter what seems to be as different circumstances that we look at that can cause us to get freaked out, that can cause us to have a lack of trust, that can have us to cause a, uh, have a lack of faith, that can cause us to try to get involved in other movements to try to bring about God's purposes, when God has said yes and amen, it is yes and amen. Can anybody say amen to that? Verse 33, now therefore, let Pharaoh, now here's where uh, Joseph kind of shifts from interpreting the dream, and I notice in the text that all of a sudden, he becomes an advisor, not just an interpreter. Now, I'm not sure if Joseph had planned to do this, and it would have been a very risky thing for Joseph to have gone beyond what Pharaoh had asked him to do to interpret the dream to now giving Pharaoh advice in the situation. It's kind of like when, when the boss calls you in 
And he says, what does this mean? And you tell the boss, this is what it means. But the boss didn't ask you for your thoughts or your opinion on the matter. Amen? So he shifts here, and now he begins to advise Pharaoh, I believe, as led by God to do so. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh, he says, select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven years of plenty. And let them gather all the food of these good years and, 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 and that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be reserved for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through famine. Now, here's this good advice that that Joseph gives to Pharaoh. Look, these seven years are going to be years of plenty, but don't indulge in the years of plenty and say we have plenty of grain to eat and and let's just get fat and happy because everything's here for today. And he gives him wisdom to say, take 20% of all of the grain that is produced, store that up for the seven years where there'll be a lack and then you'll have plenty for the people. It's good wisdom. It's a biblical principle that God gives to us in in our lives. We see it all through the book of Proverbs, that there's wisdom to store up for those days where there might be famine. And so here, Joseph gives him that instruction. And then picking up in 37, we're going to read on, and I want to make some additional comments in this. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Now, Pharaoh recognized something in Joseph that wasn't evident to everyone else around him because Pharaoh recognized that this wisdom that had come from Joseph, first of all, the ability to interpret the dreams and then the wisdom to give a, 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 an incredible plan to take care of the land during the years of famine, he recognized that this had come from somewhere outside of his realm. Now, we don't know whether or not Pharaoh had really recognized the spirit of, of the God as the Holy Spirit that we understand stand today. In some of our Bibles, there's a capital S there, but it could have very well been that, that Pharaoh recognized that somewhere in all of the gods that, that he worshiped, there was something that was divine in this instance. And he asked the question, can we find one in whom is the spirit of God? Can I make a side note here? It's always good to hear wisdom from other people, but I want to hear wisdom from an individual that walks in the Holy Spirit of God. You see, opinions really don't matter much, do they? I have a lot of opinions, and I would love to express them to you, but they don't mean a hill of beans. They mean a lot to me, but they probably don't mean anything to you. And as a matter of fact, if I express my opinions to you on certain matters, you might take exception and want to argue with me over my opinion. The only thing that matters is what God says. You see, we're caught up in a culture today where everybody's expressing their opinion over matters. 
And in this being caught up in this, while some opinions may be right, others are wrong, expressing opinions and try to vocalize our opinions on social media and different places, it avails no profit whatsoever. As a matter of fact, I think in many instances it causes to lead to greater division, and I believe that this is a device that the enemy wants to use not only to tear our nation apart, but also in the church to tear the body of Christ apart. Do not get caught up in what the opinions of the day are. Look to what the Word of God says and hold to that. Amen? That was free. Can we find this one? For there's no one as discerning as you are. And Pharaoh says to him, since God has shown you all this, you shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne, I will be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring with one hand, and that signet ring carried the authority of the king. It was that thing that would be stamped, and it had all the authority as if it were coming from Pharaoh. And so he gives this to Joseph, and he, and he takes not only the signet ring, but he clothes him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot and then called out before him, bow the knee, Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all of the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath Pina. How would you like that one? And he gave him in marriage to Ashenoth, the daughter of one of Potiphar, the priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Now I want to stop here for just a moment and cause us to think. When you look back in Joseph's life over the last 13 or so years, it seemed as though Joseph's situation and his life could have been hopeless. Despised by his family, sold as a slave, a prisoner of Potiphar, a prisoner in the jail. And in an instance, it seems as though God turns the situation around in Joseph's life to bring him to this place of prominence where he is second in command over all of the land. Now, this was no small thing to a Pharaoh. You see, a Pharaoh was even worshiped as God among the people. And here Pharaoh is putting this position on Joseph, who is, an, and the other, who is a Hebrew. He's not even an Egyptian. He's a foreigner in the land. And Pharaoh rests all of this confidence and all of this authority on Joseph. And the thing that stands out to us is that it was not anything of Joseph's character that brought this about, but it was all God so that God might fulfill his purposes, not only in Joseph's life, but also for the whole nation of Israel. We can look at it even today. 
that through Joseph's life, all that is taking place today in this dispensation in the church and the body of Christ rests on this one instance in Joseph's life. And all that will take place in future events rests on this one instance in Joseph's life where God turns the table and he changes world's event, world events and he changes the future. I also noticed that in this, Joseph did nothing of any self-promotion. The only thing that we see indicated in the Scripture that may have changed in Joseph was that before he was brought to the Pharaoh, he was cleaned up, he was shaven, he had fine clothes were put on him, but that was not Joseph's doing because you wouldn't have come into Pharaoh's presence as a prisoner. But as he gets in Pharaoh's presence, Pharaoh, by the Spirit of God, by God, causes Pharaoh to recognize that there's something here. And in an instance, God turned it around. So often we have the idea that we have to promote ourselves. The proverb says, let another one sing your praises. But isn't it that way in the world that if we want advancement, if we want a job promotion, if we want to get in a place of power, and even in the church and the body of Christ, we try to smooth, we try to finagle our way around, but always know this, that those things come to a devastating end. But when God raises up an individual, when God puts you in the place according to his purpose, it is by his purposes and for his glory alone. The second thing I noticed that Joseph Joseph didn't do when he came before Pharaoh. Joseph didn't try to plead his case. Now, if it had been me, okay, I would have come before Pharaoh and said, Pharaoh, do you realize how unjust my brothers were to me? They hated me, they despised me, and they, they sold me into slavery. And then I got into Potiphar's house, and, and that wicked woman married to Potiphar, she brought false accusations against me only because she couldn't get what she wanted and I was unjustly thrown in prison. And then when the baker gave me his word that he'd remember me when he came back in the palace, he too forgot me. I am a victim of all of these other people, so now I deserve to be raised up. Oh me or oh my. One of the ways we can always see that God has done an incredible work in an individual's life through hardship or injustice or anything like that is that they do not come out trying to plead their own case, but they trust in God and his sovereign hand, particularly in the life of believers. I've learned through the years in counseling that I can always tell oftentimes where there's conflict in relationships. I can always tell who the real guilty party is because all they'll let me do, all they'll let me know is what the other party did to them. See, we try to plead our case. And in God's sovereignty, there's no place for victimization if we trust God to be true in who he is. One thing I notice also about Joseph during this time, a couple of these we talked, touched on last week, that in whatever situation Joseph was in, whether it's Potiphar's house or the prison, he was faithful to serve in the place where he was. He recognized that God was God and God was going to be God. 
and that God was sovereign over his life. And he continued to serve. He worked diligently in that. He seemed to have gone beyond what was expected of him. I mean, if I were a slave or if I were a prisoner, I don't think I would go the extra mile. Any of you feel like you're a slave or a prisoner in your own job? You see, the slave or the prisoner feels like, hey, they're only paying me this much, so I'm not going to go any further. But I see in Joseph's life, there was that idea that he recognized that he was not serving man, but he was serving God. Now, let's pick up in this last portion, beginning in verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the house of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven years of plenty, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt. And he put the food in the cities, and he put in every city food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured." Now, before the year of the famine came, there were two that were born to Joseph and his wife, Asheneth, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Now, here's a very significant point here. Verse 51, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he knew that God has made me forget all of my hardship in my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God had made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. I somehow think that as Joseph was looking at his newborn sons, that he had a time of reflection, and in his time of reflection, he had reflected back over all of the things that had taken place in his life. He had remembered the suffering that had taken place. He had remembered the, 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 the ribbing by his brothers, the sarcasm, the put-downs by his brothers. He remembered being unjustly sold as a slave by his own kin, his own blood. I think Joseph happened to remember the time that he was in chains and shackles and he was taken into Potiphar's house to serve there as a slave and not a free man. I think he pondered the years that he was thrown into prison because of an unjust accusation that had been brought about him, uh, to him, by him. And as he looks back and reflects on this, he names the first son Manasseh, which means this, God has made me forget all my hardship and my father's house. What God had done in Joseph's life by the work of the Holy Spirit and his faithfulness and his character to realize and recognize that God was his God, that circumstances were not his God, that God had allowed Joseph to undergo a deep healing from the past and gave him hope for the future. You see, there's not a one of us in this room that has not been hurt at some point in our lives. There's not a one of us in this room that has in some way not suffered some type of injustice, whether it's being the last one to be picked 
for the, for the kickball game at school, right? Or something unheard of that was done to us. But here's the redeeming power that God has in our lives when we surrender those past things to him and allow him to do that work in us that God can cause us to forget those things that it, that it happened. And he gives us not only a healing from those past things, but he also gives us hope for the future. There is not a thing in your life or my life that has ever happened to us, no matter how gross, no matter how difficult, no matter how hard, no matter how violent, at the hands of others that God by the Holy Spirit cannot bring healing and wholeness and give us a hope for the future. Amen? You see, God loves, he's in the business, if you will, of redeeming and turning things around. I love what Joel chapter 2 verse 25 says, I will restore to you the years that the locust swarming have eaten up, as he says to Egypt. Now, look at the second name. He names him Ephraim. For God, he says, I'm going to name this child Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Circle that one word, in. You see, God does not always get us out, but he will certainly bring us through. And sometimes it's in that land of affliction that God has allowed you or I to walk through that he wants to show himself faithful, he wants to show himself miraculous, and he wants to show himself as the true and living God, that there's no other way we could ever understand that except through that path and in that affliction. I think of what the psalmist writes in Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Notice the psalmist didn't say that, yea, though, when I'm about to walk through the valley, God takes me up and out of the valley. Yea, though, I walk through the valley, and that valley can represent anything that may come in our lives. Yea, though, we walk through those dark places that in those places, God will carry us through to the other side. And it's his purpose oftentimes so that he might conform us to the likeness of Christ, that he allows us to walk through those. Our responsibility, our call is to trust God in that. And so that brings me to the closing point. Four quick things I want us to give. How do we trust God in his purposes? These are things that come out of this portion of the life of Joseph. For we can very well see that Joseph trusted God. Number one is this. How do we trust God in his purposes? Well, for us, we need to understand and realize that character is everything. You see, when you see Joseph and you look at his life, some have said that Joseph had impeccable character, and I think we may be giving him too much credit in that because Joseph was a man just like you and I. But through all of this, we see that Joseph exhibited character. He exhibited the character to serve where he was placed. He exhibited the character to trust God in those situations. He, he exhibited the character to be true to his word. All of these things we see that Joseph exhibited. 
And while we might look at Joseph and his character, the story is really not about Joseph. The story is all about God's character, not Joseph's character. For although Joseph may have been faithful, and the Bible says, who is, he who is faithful in a little will be given much, the one who has a part of his name, God, is the faithful one. So my rest and my hope, your rest and your hope is not on our character because every one of our characters are flawed at some place. If you don't believe that, just ask your spouse. But the one who is faithful cannot but always remain faithful. The second thing is this. That God always, always, always determines the time. God determines the time. It's customary in many of our black churches to say this. God is faithful. There you go. God is faithful. All the time. You see, the timing is always in God's hands. I tend to think that it should be sooner than later. In just the fullness of time, the Bible tells us, when the time was complete, God sent his son. There are some that think Jesus needs to come back tomorrow. Can I encourage you that it may be another millennial before he comes back. In the fullness of time, and time rests in God's hands. I hate waiting. I mean, it drives me crazy to be ready to go somewhere, and Sandy's not ready. It, it, it drives me crazy that, that, I, that I'm waiting for something to be fulfilled, but it hasn't been fulfilled yet. And what I've got to remember is that God is working out in that time what he needs to work out so that just the right time. Somebody said God's never early. He's never late. He's always on time. And then thirdly, very close to that second one, is we can trust God in his timing. What is it that you're waiting on? for God's purposes to be fulfilled in your life and for his purposes. But can I tell you this? You can always trust God in his timing. God is never late and God is never early. Lastly, we can have confidence in God's purposes in our lives. We can have confidence in God's purposes in our lives. I have a tendency to think sometimes that my purposes, my plans, all of those things are better than God's. There's a course we used to always sing in his time. Came out in the 70s during the Jesus movement, but I loved it. 
The lines in the chorus go like this, in his time, in his time, he makes all things beautiful in his time. And then there's a prayer to the chorus that says, Lord, show me every day teaching me your ways that you do just what you say in your time. When I was 30, I used to think there was no time, that it all had to happen now. Now in my 60s, as I've approached third base, I realize that it may not happen in my lifetime, but it may be yet to be fulfilled in another lifetime. You see, Abraham got the promise. And now we see finally, three generations later, where God is to begin to fulfill the promise that he had given to Abraham. You see, you and I may never see it. Our responsibility, our call is to be faithful in that and we can trust God in his timing, believing this, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes, verse 29, which we often forget related to verse 28, for those he foreknew, he also predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You see, one of the things I've learned that in God's timing and God's purposes, that God's primary work that he does in the life of the Christ follower his primary work in you and I is to conform us to the likeness of his son, Jesus. And I've learned that takes time. I know some of you have arrived, but I haven't. The truth is none of us have. But God is working through every situation and every circumstance in your life and in my life so that he might conform us to the likeness of Christ so that we might bring him glory and be a witness to those who have yet to come to know Christ. May God grant us opportunities in this coming week that in every place that we find ourselves, that God would use us to sow a seed of the gospel in somebody's heart, to plant that seed there. If we recognize the seed's been planted, that God give us an opportunity to cultivate that seed and wait on him to bring the harvest. And if God, by his grace, would allow us to see somebody saved this week, we'd shout hallelujah from the rooftops. Amen. Father, we pray this morning that as we close, God, reflecting on the life of Joseph, God, that you would work in us those deep things, God. That, Lord, at the end of the day, God, that we would be fully and wholly surrendered to you and your plans and your purposes in our lives, God, and not in our plans and in our timing and in our ways, but, God, we'd submit ourselves to you. And, oh, God, we thank you for your grace. 
And Lord, sometimes when we miss it, God, your plans are never thwarted. Lord, we love you, we trust you, we magnify you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.